Okay. Welcome to today's class. First of all, we want to mention that uh, the class is Le'ilu Nishmas Chaim Moshe ben Binyamin Tzvi, whose yard site is today. The Nishama should have an aliyah. Um, this class is being spoken to an empty room because of precautions that are being taken regarding the spread of the coronavirus. We are not having class in the regular way, but Baruch Hashem, the Eivishter was makdim rufuul to some extent and made the wonders of modern technology available to us. And although the room is empty in the physical sense, we are actually able to reach so many people through, uh, through video and uh, online. So our minds today should be on preparing for Pesach. We know that 30 days before the Yom Tif, we begin to prepare. And yet, the whole world is uh, preoccupied with the, uh, the headlines about the spread of this virus. Interestingly, however, I think that we can do both at the same time. We can prepare for Pesach, and we can learn a lesson from today's headlines at the same time. We know the Baal Shem Tov taught one of his, uh, the tenets of his teachings was that from everything that one sees and everything that one hears, one must learn a, an instruction in the service of Hashem. And certainly this is no exception, something that is affecting literally the whole world in an unprecedented fashion. Must be something that teaches us, gives us guidance. So let's begin and let's talk about Pesach. Pesach, as we know, is the commemoration or even the reliving of the redemption of our people, the liberation from slavery to freedom. And regarding the very first Pesach, meaning the actual exodus from Egypt, we find something rather interesting that maybe we gloss over from year to year, but this year takes on new significance. The night before the Jewish people left Egypt, we know that they performed the Korban Pesach, that's the, the Passover sacrifice, and that they had to perform the sacrifice in their homes and then apply the blood from the sacrifice upon the doorposts and the uh, lentil of the door. And not only did they perform this at home, but as the Torah tells us, this is in Parshish Bay, this is Hashem's instructions, that you should take a bunch of hyssop, you dip it in the blood that's in the bowl, and you touch that blood upon the two doorposts and on the, 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 the lintel. From the blood that's in the bowl. And you, the Jewish people, No one should leave his home. No one should leave from the entrance of his home until morning. In other words, on that first night, when the Korban Pesach was performed on the eve of redemption, the Jewish people were all homebound. They were all quarantined. Nobody was allowed to leave from the entrance of their home. 
So this is an interesting, uh, this is an interesting detail of the, the Exodus that perhaps we don't think about from year to year. But what is the significance of being homebound? What's the, the, the lesson and the teaching for us about being stuck at home? Okay, so I want to share with you two teachings that we find in uh, the teachings of, of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. One of them is from a Sicha published in Lakute Sichas, the edited Sichas, Chelik uh, Chov Vav, that's volume 26, the third Sicha of Parshas Bay. This is a sicha which uh, has a great deal of scholarly insight. It analyzes a, uh, a discussion of the Rogachover, who uh, looks into the details of the actual sacrifice and, it, and, its, uh, and its rites. But the gist of the sicha asks a question. There's a tesefta in, uh, in Psachim that tells us that one of the primary differences between Pesach Mitzrayim, Pesach Mitzrayim means the Korban Pesach as it was performed that one time, that first time in Mitzrayim while the Jews still were, <coughs> were in Egypt before redemption on the eve of redemption. One of the differences between the Pesach Mitzrayim and what's called Pesach Doiris. Pesach Doiris means all subsequent uh, Passover offerings that were brought every other year after the Exodus. One of the primary differences, the Tesafdim Psachim says, is that Pesach Mitzrayim kol echod ve'echod sheichet b'seich beisai, the Passover offering that was performed in, while still in Egypt, every individual would actually slaughter the animal in their home, in their individual homes. Pesach Doirois, the subsequent Passover offerings that were brought for all generations, kol Yisro sheichtim b'mokim echad, all Jews <coughs> would have their animals slaughtered in one locale, in one location, which was the Azara, the courtyard of the Beis HaMikdash, of the Holy Temple. It's an interesting thing. How do we look at this? Let's just give a little background so we understand. The, the Korban Pesach, the Passover offering, was performed uh, on, on, on Erev Pesach. And how was it done? You take a lamb, you bring it to the Beis HaMikdash, and the shechita, the slaughter, and the, the sprinkling of the blood, which are basic components of any, of any uh, sacrifice, that's all done in the Beis HaMikdash. And then you take the lamb back home, and then you eat it at home. You eat the lamb at home. The first Korban Pesach, how did they bring the lamb to the Beis HaMikdash or even the Mishkan. The Mishkan was the temporary sanctuary that the Jews had the 40 years in the desert and then subsequently for centuries before Shlomo Melech built the permanent house in Yudashalayim. But how did they bring the lamb either to a Mikdash or to a Mishkan, meaning to a, a central location, when it didn't yet exist? So they had no choice other than to do all of the components of the sacrifice in the home. In other words, in all subsequent generations, there were two phases of the sacrifice. You would go to the temple, and they would do the slaughter of the, the animal and the sprinkling of the blood, and then you would bring it home to do the roasting and the eating. The first time it was done, however, there wasn't that option. There was no central place. There was no mishkan, and there was no mikdash. So what did you do? The whole thing was done at home. The question is, however, 
Was that a practical dispensation? Was that basically a an, 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 a uh, a ceding to the to the fact to the reality that there was just no other choice? Or was it like the, the Rebbe brings out in this sicha, actually not a leniency but a stringency, not a kula but a chumra? In other words. The fact that all parts of the sacrifice had to be performed at home, in the home, wasn't a dispensation. It was actually, for that year, part and parcel of the laws governing that sacrifice. In other words, so that if it hadn't been done that way, it would not have been, <clears throat> one would not discharge one's obligation. Would not, one would not be doing one's duty according to the, to the parameters of the mitzvah. In other words... For the first time the Jewish people brought the Korban Pesach, it wasn't just that they could do the whole thing at home, it was that they had to do the whole thing at home. The first Korban Pesach was done entirely in a homebound way. It's a very interesting concept. Now, from a practical standpoint, again, we understand that one of the reasons they couldn't leave the home was because the mashchis, the destruction or the, destru the destructive energy, was out uh, performing the 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 makis the, 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 the slaughter of the firstborn, and that uh, the idea was to administer the blood to the doorway so that the so that Hashem would pass over, literally pass over the, the, the homes where the blood was placed. So that's why they weren't going out. They weren't going out because of the, the negative energy that was out uh, outside of the house. And they would only be protected by staying in. However, as the Rebbe brings out in this Sikha, there's more to it than that. Yes, this, this aspect of it as well, but there's more to it than that. Part and parcel of the Korban Pesach is that there has to be a sprinkling of the blood and that it has to be done on the Mizbeach, on the altar, in the temple. But when you have no Mishkan and you have no Mikdash and therefore you have no altar, what are you supposed to do? So the Rebbe brings out that in this particular instance, the Jewish home and the doorposts of the home became as if they were the altar with all the stringencies, and in fact, in certain ways, greater stringencies than if it had been done in, in, in the actual temple. So what do we see from this? What do we learn? One very powerful lesson is that from the very beginning of Jewish nationhood, of Jewish peoplehood, the message was made clear. The power and the centrality of the Jewish home. It's not just because we didn't yet have a central place, we had no other choice but to do it at home, from a certain perspective, it's that we had to do it at home because that itself was what was inherent to the message. What message? The mandate, the charter of the Jewish people. We know Hashem created the world because Hashem desired, yearned to have a dwelling place in the lower realms, in the physical world. The exodus is likened to the birth of the Jewish people. Many, many, there's very much imagery, in the, especially in the Vos Yechezkel, that describes the Jewish people as being born uh, during, uh, during the exodus. What does it mean, birth? 
Birth is when you enter this world, the physical world. Your soul, your eternal soul, existed long before you were born. Birth is not a chiddush, it's not a, 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 a revolutionary change for your soul. Uh, it's, it's, it's a new change for the world. It's a, your soul entering a new phase vis-a-vis being embodied and entering the world. So the birth of the Jewish nation basically means the beginning of the Jewish people. Think about the Jewish people before uh, their birth, meaning this bank of souls that, that pre-exists the, the giving of the Torah and pre-exists the Exodus and actually, um, mystically speaking, pre-exists the creation of the world. And now all of a sudden, these souls are being put into the world, into physical bodies, in order to do physical mitzvahs with physical objects to refine the physical world to make it holier than heaven. To make the physical world where they're going holier than the heavens where they came from. How can we make a statement that the purpose of life, the purpose of embodiment, the purpose of being here in this world is to make the world a better place? Not through going out to a central place outside of one's day-to-day life or outside of one's home. But to the contrary, by bringing all the spiritual energy into the home, by putting the focus into the nuclear family. As it says regarding the Korban Pesach, that it was a sheep per household. And Rashi explains very clearly, it doesn't just mean that uh, we're talking about a family, like a base of like it says earlier in the, in the Pasuk, an extended family, but we're talking about the nuclear family. We're talking about the family that lives under one roof. That the whole point of the Korban Pesach, the first Korban Pesach, was to put the focus on the nuclear family. That means the, the, the family living under one roof, and to show that that is the focal point of everything. Put it very simply. <clears throat> there was once... Um, a visitor who came to 770 Eastern Parkway, and he was underwhelmed. Why? Because it wasn't so fancy. And he asked the Rebbe's chief secretary, Rabbi Chadukov, you know, uh, why is it like this? Why don't you make it nicer? Why don't you make it more uh, grandiose? And uh, Rabbi Chadukov quickly uh, thought of a, a parable or an allegory. He says, have you ever been into the big skyscrapers in Manhattan? So the guy says, yeah, sure. He says, you've been up to the, you know, the top floor where they have the penthouse, you know, the fancy apartments on the top of the skyscraper where the rich people live. Yeah, okay. He says, uh, how do they get heat all the way up there? There's, there's, a, you know, there's a system that brings heat up there. Where does the heat come from? It comes from the basement. Now, down in the basement, there's a boiler room. Have you ever been in the boiler room? The boiler room's not pretty. So, <laughs> but if it wouldn't be for the boiler room, the heat wouldn't reach the penthouse. So he says, welcome to the boiler room. Right? You're asking why it doesn't look fancy here. The point of this building is not to receive spiritual energy, warmth, and light, but to emit it, to put it out there. Okay? And that was the same thing with the Beis HaMikdash. Shleim HaMelech built the Beis HaMikdash in such a way we know that the windows were shkufim atumim. That means flared outward. Why were they flared outward? Generally speaking, in, in, in those days, windows were built the opposite way, that warmth and light from the sun should diffuse should spread out as it comes into the house so that it would maximize its effect, sort of like a reverse funnel. But 
Shleimah Melech built the Beis HaMikdash in a way that the windows were flared outward. Why was that so? Because the point of the Beis HaMikdash was not to bring light in, but to put light out, sort of to be a boiler room. So here's the question. What's the point of a boiler room without rooms, without uh, offices and, and, and apartments in the building to send, its, to send its heat to? But then conversely, how useful are the apartments and the offices if they don't have a boiler room to get their heat from? That's the relationship between the Mikdosh and the Jewish home. The Mikdosh, the central focal point, that's to emit all the warmth, the spiritual light. That's, where, that's the boiler room. That's where everything com comes from. But each individual Jewish home, that's the focal point. That's the goal. That's the target where the spiritual energy is supposed to actually reach and be admitted to. And we see this from the very beginning when Hashem told the Jewish people to, to build a, a sanctuary. He said, Asli Mikdosh, make for me a, a sanctuary. V'shechanti b'seicham and I will dwell within them. Why not within it, within the sanctuary? Because, like the commentaries explain, it means within each and every individual Jew. So even from the very beginning, the point of the Mishkan was not that it should receive spiritual light, but it should emit spiritual light, and emit it toward where? Toward each individual Jew in their individual life. So from the very beginning, what was the point? The point wasn't that we should build this massive cathedral that should be the, 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 the monument to Jewish spiritual life. And if you want to be spiritual, you have to go to that place. No, to the contrary, the very opposite. That yes, there's a central place, but that's not the place we have to go to. That's the place where the energy comes out from and it's supposed to reach you in your home, in your day-to-day -day life. And this message was clear from the very first day, on the eve of the Exodus, before we even formally became a people, on the eve of our birth as a people. Again, that idea of birth means coming into the world. What did we come into the world for? We came into the world so that each little corner of this world should become a dira betachtainim, a dwelling place for Hashem. We came into this world so each Jewish house should become a mikdash ma'at, a miniature sanctuary. And that was abundantly apparent at the very first moment, when the first Korban Pesach, the Pesach Mitzrayim, not only could be performed at home, but it had to be performed at home. All components of it, even the components that would normally be performed in the temple, to make the message clear. The focal point, the target, the goal, of Judaism is in the home. It's interesting. I was just thinking, just for myself, the Rebbe had 10 mitzvah campaigns, the, the 10 mitzvahim. And um, I never heard anybody else point this out, but so I'm, I don't know how much validity there is to the thought, but it occurred to me that none of the 10 mitzvah campaigns require a shul or any building or institution, any uh, communal place. But many of them require a home, a Jewish home. Um, Shabbos candles primarily is lit in the home. The Jewish woman lights the Shabbos candles where the family eats for Shabbos. 
Uh, tefillin, okay, tefillin could be done anywhere. It could be done in a street corner, but it doesn't need to be done in any particular place. Mezuzah, mezuzah, you have to have a home. In fact, the whole obligation of mezuzah is, is for your home when you, are, when you, when you actually are establish residency in a home. Um, Torah study, okay, that can be done anywhere. Uh, tzedakah can be done anywhere, but however, you know, the Rebbe often emphasized the importance of tzedakah being done in the home to the extent of encouraging people to affix a tzedakah pushka as part of the home, to actually uh, build a, 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 a tzedakah pushka into the walls of the home so that the house itself should become a receptacle for, uh, for, for tzedakah. Um, Bias Malay Svarim is one of the ten mitzvahim. I mean, there you have the word bias right there, a house full of Torah books. House full of Torah books is, <laughs> requires a house. Uh, kashras, okay, kashras, of course, that applies even out of the home, but the main idea of kashras is to make a kosher home, to kosher the home and to make sure that everything you bring in the home should, uh, should, be, should be kosher. Uh, Avas Yisrael, okay, you could do that anywhere. Maybe in the home is the hardest place to do Avas Yisrael, but that's, <laughs> that's uh, another class for another time. Chinuch, um, education, okay, yes, that could take place out of the home, but the primary education is in the home, it's from one's parents, and, and, and like the Rebbe spoke about many, many times, really from, from a mother to, to small children, that really the, the foundation of chinuch is, is in the home, and uh, in mikvah, okay, obviously, very few people have a mikvah in their house, but the whole idea of mikvah, of Taras Mishpacha, really is about what happens in the home. In fact, what happens in the epicenter of the home, what we call the Kedesh Kedoshim of the home. The marital relationship is the Holy of Holies, is the epicenter, the inner sanctum of the home, and is really the bedrock, the foundation of, of Jewish home life. So, Again, we see that the target and the goal is always about the personal life, the home life, nuclear families, bringing it into your immediate sphere of influence. So at this time, when we are all homebound, I think it is very, very worthwhile to meditate on the fact that the message from the first Pesach is that this is where our thoughts ought to be. Our thoughts ought to be on our homes. And uh, we could use this as an opportunity. Every challenge is an opportunity. And uh, every problem has the seeds of a solution. So at this time when so many of, so many of us are quote unquote stuck at home, no, you're not stuck at home. Um, you have an opportunity to refocus and recalibrate how much attention should really be paid to the spiritual health of the home. And to remember that that's really the goal of, of everything Jewish we do. The birth of the Jewish people, the coming into this world of the Jewish people is about keeping our focus on what we can do in our homes. Okay, so that's, that's one thought. <clears throat> Another thought, also from the teachings of the Rebbe, is from a Micht of Klali. Micht of Klali is a general letter, a pastoral letter that Rebbe wrote several times a year letters that were addressed to the entire Jewish people. Very often, one of those letters would be written on Yud Aleph Nissen, the Rebbe's birthday, and uh, would usually have a Pesach theme, being in the days right before Pesach. So the Micht of Kloli of Yud Aleph Nissen, Tovshin Chav Dalet, 5724, um, which you can find, the easiest way to find it is if you have the, uh, the Haggadah, the Rebbe's Haggadah, that uh, is in the two-volume set. So in the second volume, they have all of the general letters for Pesach from all the years. 
and uh, that's the easiest place to, to locate that letter and all the other letters. So in the Micht of Klali of 5724, the Rebbe asks again about this idea of the theme of the home in regards to, to Pesach. Not like we were talking about before, about how Pesach Mitzrayim, the very first Pesach, every part of it had to be done in the home. But even Pesach Deirais, the subsequent generations, uh, there was still a major component of it that had to be done in the home. Meaning even when they had the, the temple and the, the slaughter and the sprinkling of the blood was done in the temple, still they had to take the animal and bring it back into the house and eat it together as families in homes. So we see e- even after the first uh, the first Korban Pesach, the home continues to be an important, indispensable component of, of the Korban. And what, what is the message there? So to, to briefly summarize, in, in the letter, uh, in the Micht of Kloli, the, the, the Rebbe speaks about the idea that the Korban Pesach, as we mentioned before, in, in Parshish Bay, is introduced... Um, Dabru el kol adas Yisrael. Hashem tells Moshe, speak to the entirety of the congregation of Israel, the entire Jewish people, and then proceeds to uh, tell them to perform the Korban Pesach, and then stipulates how it's to be done. V'yikachu lahem, they should each take each, each individual, se leves aves, a sheep for each family, se laboyas a sheep for each household. So it's an interesting juxtaposition. On one hand, the verse starts and says, Dabru al speak to the entirety of the congregation, the entire Jewish people. But then the verse ends and says the actual application of the mitzvah is se leves aves, a sheep per family, se laboyis, a sheep per household. What do we see from this? That something that's big, something that's universal, something that's applicable to the entirety of the congregation of Israel. If you really want to do that thing, it has to be done in the base aves, in the bias, in the family, in the home. And the Rebbe there, he bemoans how often we see, especially from leadership, the Rebbe talks about rabbis who want to have a big message, a universal message, and they, 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 they talk about major world global problems that uh, really don't have any practical bearing on anyone's life. And, uh, you know, the, they, they, say, they say there was once a, a young man, he got married during Sheva Brachas. He was, uh, you know, he was newly married. He was seeing that marriage is a little bit more tricky than, than he understood. So he was in shul, he went over to an older guy. The guy had been married for, you know, 30, 40 years. And uh, he said to him, listen, you have any advice for me? So uh, the older guy says, yeah, well, I'll tell you something. Um, what, what works in my house, my wife and I made a division of, of responsibilities. Um, I deal with all the big issues, and uh, she deals with all the, uh, the small issues. He says, really? And it works? He says, yeah, thank God, 35 years of marriage hasn't yet been one big issue. What's the, every truth has a little joke. (laughs) Big issues are very uh, interesting in theory. But in real life, did they really come up? Did they really occur? 
What is real life? Real life is a bunch of little issues, quote-unquote little issues. But it's the little issues that make or break everything. Because that's, those are the things that we actually have control over. Those are the things that actually constitute our life. So sometimes it's much easier to put the focus on the big things that really don't have anything to do with us, but it's a distraction from the little things that we should be taking responsibility for. This is the, <clears throat> the old story about the communist indoctrinator who came to the village before the, the, the Russian Revolution, and he was teaching communism. And he's making sure that they understand. So he asks this little, this little farmer in the audience, he says, Comrade, do you understand how communism works? He says, yeah, I think I do. He says, let me quiz you, make sure. He says, if you have two cows, what do you do? He says, I have two cows, what do I do? He says, I keep one cow and I give one cow to the Communist Party. Very good, comrade. Okay, let me ask you. You have two goats, what do you do? What do I do? He says, I keep one goat and I give one goat to the Communist Party. He says, very good, comrade. Okay, you have two chickens, what do you do? Guy silent. Comrade, two chickens, what do you do? <laughs> no response. The guy's, he won't answer. So <laughs> the communist indoctrinator says, Comrade, comrade, two chickens, what do you do? He says, let me think for a second. He says, the communist says, I don't understand. When it came to two cows, right away you're ready to give away a cow. When it came to two goats, right away you're ready to give away one goat. Now two little chickens and you're hesitating? What's the difference here? He says, you want to know the difference? I actually have two chickens. When it's talking about giving away a cow that you don't even have, okay, no problem, I'll give it away. A goat that you don't have, I'll give it away. But when now you're talking about chickens, <laughs> chickens, now you're getting personal. I actually have chickens, right? So <clears throat> what's the idea here? The idea is that sometimes we distract ourselves from being effective, from being most potent by trying to take on issues that are way beyond us. And instead, how could we be more powerful and more effective and influential by focusing on the little things? You know, a lot of times we can, uh, unfortunately many of us can relate to this, that we're so busy with the world that we fail to tend to our own backyard. And this is a message of Pesach. A message of Pesach is that in order to be universal, it has to be specific. In order to be global, it has to be local. You want to change the world? Start by changing yourself. Focus on you, your family, your immediate sphere of influence. This is the lesson each year on Pesach. Especially in a time like this, <clears throat> in a situation as we are in right now, I think this takes on very poignant meaning for us that we have now an opportunity to really, really change the world. How? By being forced to focus on the family. This is a time where our kids can remember being cooped up in the house with their, with their parents whose nerves are frazzled, and they'll look back on this weird two weeks, hopefully it'll only be two weeks, or however long it'll be, and, and they'll say how stressful it was, or our children will look back on this time and they'll say, wow, you know, it was really weird and, you know, we hope it doesn't ever happen again, but it was, in a certain way, it was kind of nice, you know, the family was bonding and uh, we got to know each other again and we connected with each other and, you know, it's really up to us, the adults, to set that tone in the house that we're cherishing the opportunity. Obviously, we want everyone to be healthy and we don't want 
a situation that's negative to, to have to, to force us into our homes. But uh, and, and in truth, <laughs> based on what the Rebbe is saying here about the lesson of Pesach, we should have anyway focused on the home because Pesach is coming. Um, but it's neither here nor there at this point how it came to be the situation. The fact of the matter is this is the current situation and we should embrace that aspect of it as a time for refocusing on the home, which is the place where we are most powerful. Not just in an immediate sense, but ultimately in, by, by ripple effect on the whole world. You want to change the world, change yourself, change your family, put the focus on the home. Okay. Um, so those are just a couple of thoughts regarding Pesach and uh, the current situation. I also, in, in, a, in the few minutes uh, remaining, I just wanted to uh, touch upon uh, a couple of other thoughts that are uh, applicable to our times. Um, we know that the virus can be transmitted even by people who do not feel sick. That's one of the things that they're telling us is you have to practice social distancing even if you don't feel sick because you don't know if you're a carrier. You don't know if you're infecting others. First of all, you might not find out to much later that you were infected, or you may never find out because some people's symptoms are so mild. It's a very interesting concept here. You don't know whom is being affected by you. It's a very interesting idea. You don't know whom is being affected by you. My, uh, a friend of mine, really a mentor, a colleague, Rabbi uh, Daniel Moskowitz, all of a shalom, who was the head shliach in the state of Illinois, he once told me that, uh, you know, the sages, Chazal say, the words from the heart enter the heart. But he added, and he said, but sometimes you don't know which heart. <laughs> words from the heart always enter the heart, but sometimes you don't know which heart. And he actually had a whole story that he, that he used to tell. I heard, I heard him tell the story on, on a number of occasions, a story about um, having to go to the hospital with his wife on Erev Shabbos in a very bad neighborhood in Chicago and uh, running out of gas, and he thinks maybe even somebody siphoned the gas because he thought the, 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 the tank had been full the previous day. And uh, so anyways, he was stuck there in this very bad neighborhood, and he had to walk to the gas station. And uh, so he's walking to the gas station, and uh, finally he saw a police officer, which he was relieved to see a police officer in this neighborhood, and he asked the police officer if he could help him. police officer didn't even want to get out of the car. He just told him, to keep walking, the gas station's in six blocks. So finally he got to the gas station, <clears throat> and the guy's behind the big bulletproof glass, you know, the guy doesn't even, you know, the guy at the gas station. So he says to him, can I buy some gas? Sure, you have a gas canister. He says, no, I don't have a canister. Oh, no, okay, fine, maybe I'll go to another gas station. Where's the next gas station? He points to him six blocks down, another six blocks. He's not, he doesn't want to walk in this neighborhood anymore. So he starts rummaging through the trash, and he finds a big uh, orange juice, like a plastic orange juice canister. And... Um, He's going to put the gas in the, in the orange juice canister. And as he's doing this, a car pulls up, and this guy pulls up, and uh, he's, he's looking at Rabbi Moskowitz, and he, and he asks him, hey, what, what's going on? And he's like, I ran out of gas, and I don't have a canister, and I'm 
putting it in this orange juice bottle. So the guy says, you need a ride back to your car? Come on, get in. It's a big mitzvah. So it's not a very Jewish neighborhood. The guy doesn't look very Jewish. Uh, Rabbi Moskowitz asks the guy, he's like, are you Jewish? The guy laughs. He says, do I look Jewish? Come on, man. <laughs> get in the car. Let me do a mitzvah. So he's thinking to himself, what's more dangerous, getting in the car with this stranger? I mean, it seems nice, but it's a bad neighborhood and he's a stranger. Or walking back six blocks, you know. So he, he decides he'll take his... Uh, He'll, he'll, he'll uh, take his chances, and he goes with the guy. And as they're riding, you know, a little 30-second ride back to the car. Um, so he says, where do, where do you know a mitzvah from? How do you know a mitzvah? So the guy says to him, he says, you're Chabad. He's like, yeah, how do you know Chabad? So he says, when I was younger, I went to school, went to college on the East Coast, and I had a Jewish roommate. And every Saturday morning, the Chabad rabbi would come knock on the door to get my roommate. And I used to apologize to the rabbi, and I would say, you know what, um, I'll come. You know what you need my roommate for? You know, he told him, a quorum, we need 10 in order to pray. He says, I'll come. He says, oh, that's so nice of you, I, I, but I, I need a Jewish person to come. So he said, I, would, I, I always felt bad. I couldn't help him, but the rabbi was so nice, and he told me, look, you'll help in other ways. And so I saw a way to help. So, you know, this is my way of helping. You know, I couldn't be part of that uh, the, the minion every, every, every you know, Saturday morning, but, uh, you know, you can help in other ways, so this is my way of helping. So, uh, oh, here we are, here's your car, okay. So Rabbi Moskowitz, on the, on the drive home, he's telling his wife about the mitzvah man who gave him a ride and who uh, was trying to help out in the way that he could help out. And uh, he says, you know, the amazing thing is, there's some shliach at some campus on the East Coast who has no idea that years later, the roommate of the guy who never came to Minyan was affected so deeply to the extent that he's going around and doing mitzvahs. So that's what Rabbi Moskowitz said. Words from the heart enter the heart. We just don't always know which heart. It's an incredible lesson for us. We go around and we're affecting people all the time, and we don't even realize it. We don't know that we're a carrier. But in this case, a carrier for something good. So we should learn from the virus that if we could be a carrier for something negative and transmit it without even knowing that we're doing so, how much more so, as we know our sages tell us, that meruba midatoiva, that the good aspect is abundantly, disproportionately greater than the mida peronis, than the, the negative or destructive uh, aspect. There's a story that Rebbe once told at a Fabrengen in, uh, in 1955. It was the Yud Beis Yud Gimel Tamas Fabrengen, which was a yearly uh, high point. It's the celebration of the liberation of the previous Rebbe. And at this, uh, this uh, gathering, the Rebbe told a story about a young man and he referred to him as a Bostonian, a young man from Boston, who was walking down the street with his beard and with his hat and his tzitzis hanging out, and that an old man looked through the window and saw this Bostonian, and he asked somebody, who is that young man? He looks, you know, we're talking about in the 1950s, so he says, he looks like the Jews that I knew back in Europe before the war. 
He looks like my grandfather. Is he from Poland? Is, is he from Galicia? Where is he from? And they told him, no, he's a Bostonian. And the Rebbe explained how being from Boston is very upper crust and very respected. That's like the aristocracy of America. It happens to be the, the, the Bachar, the young man in the story, was uh, Rabbi Yehuda Krinsky. Um, so the Rebbe is speaking about this at the, the Febrengen and saying, and the young man doesn't even know the effect that he had. He doesn't even know that it stirred this old man to, 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 to Shuva and not only affected the old man, but affected his children and his grandchildren. So here you see how it's Meruba the Midatoiva. Because with the virus, if you practice social dis distancing, if you make sure people are out of your Daladames, your six feet, then you can't really affect them, right? But here, the Bostonian, the young Bacher, he was walking down the street outside and somebody from inside saw him and was affected. And the Rebbe mentions there the Rambam's eight levels of tzedakah. Many of us are familiar with the fact that Rambam says there are eight levels of tzedakah. What's the highest level? The highest level is when the giver doesn't know the recipient and the recipient doesn't know the giver. So the Rebbe said this was the case here because the Bachar didn't even know the effect that he had on the old man. And the old man didn't even know who the Bachar was. He didn't even know his identity. This is the highest level of tzedakah, spiritual tzedakah. So we see from this, we can see a living illustration that we're having an effect on people all the time. We learned this from the virus, that we're transmitting something. We can be carriers without even realizing that we're carriers. But we have to realize that even if you don't see it, Words from the heart enter the heart, even if you don't necessarily find out, in the end, which heart. And that not only is this happening, but it's meruba, it is greater, disproportionately greater than the negative, that we, that because, I mean, this, this itself is, is the greatest example of it. The fact that I'm speaking into a, this is an empty room, there's no one here, I'm speaking into a video camera, but I'm able to transmit something, Bezos Hashem, with, without even being in physical proximity. So when it comes to the, 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 the virus, the, 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 there's a limit to how much, how far we can reach. When it comes to positive things, Torah and mitzvahs, giving encouragement and, uh, and, and, and positive direction, according to Torah, there, there's, there's no limit. And we don't know how much influence we're having. So I want to encourage everybody, again, the primary focus now should be on the home, to embrace the fact that we're in the homes, to embrace the focus on the nuclear family and on our children, that they should look back and remember fondly the closeness that we experienced together as a family unit during this time. And that we should also remember to take a lesson from, uh, from the uh, transmission of, of the virus itself, that if this is something in the negative that can be so contagious, think about in the positive, when it comes to spreading positivity and clarity and wisdom, how many people we affect all the time, we don't even know. We don't even know. But we just have to put ourselves out there, continue doing good things, and let Hashem decide where, those, where that energy is going to reach. We don't know who will be affected, but surely people will be affected. Everybody should stay safe. Stay healthy, enjoy your time with your family, um, and uh, God willing, we should all have a very kosher and happy Passover.